Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. This time, I'm joined by Nick Leeson, the former derivatives trader who bankrupted his employer Bearings Bank in 1995. Sentenced to prison for his role in the bank's collapse, he later published his account of what happened in a book, Rogue Trader, which was turned into a movie starring Hugh McGregor and Anna Friel. Since his release, Nick has moved to Ireland and now spends his time delivering speeches about financial regulation to audiences around the world. In our interview, he tells me about the huge cultural shift that took place in the financial sector during his time there, why he's never been great at saving for the future, and why he always encourages people to ask for help when they need it. Nick Leeson, thank you so much for coming on the II Family Money podcast. Take us back to young Nick growing up and your life and lifestyle, your parents, what they did, and whether or not you had any idea at that age, whether or not they struggled with money. Well, I um, grew up on a council estate in Watford. Um, So um, we were very, very working class, I would imagine. My dad was a plasterer. My um, mother did a bit of work in a mental hospital that was fairly close to where we lived, just night work, really. So we, there was never a lot of money around. Um, I mean, I think in, in terms of entertaining myself, it was always playing football or running outside, things that didn't really cost a great deal of money. It would be difficult to say that we ever went without anything because I don't really remember that. I think my, um, certainly my mother more so than my father, but she would have always made sure that we had what we needed. But I wouldn't have thought it was particularly easy for them to um, to facilitate that most of the time. I do remember, you know, very, um, look, we would have had a television that you put 50Ps into the back of and, uh, you know, somebody would have come around at the uh, at the end of the week to collect the 50Ps. And I'm, I'm sure that my mother and father delved into that once or twice when maybe they mm-hmm. shouldn't have. And we were hiding from the TV man when he came around um, at the end of the week. So yeah, it was you know it was a, it was a nice, enjoyable childhood, but there wasn't a lot of you know I can't remember going out to eat in a restaurant until certainly I was working myself and 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 doing things like that. So there was only ever just about mm-hmm. enough to get by. Quite typical for a lot of kids, isn't it, growing up like that, where parents probably are keeping a little bit of their financial worries and concerns away from children. Um, but you, you felt like you had a great happy childhood, so why would you worry about it? But then I guess on the flip side of that, they yeah. weren't talking to you about pensions or educating you about money or talking to you about savings. No, well, I don't think they had any themselves to talk about. So, um, no, there was there was definitely none of that. And I think when you look at um, school curriculums, I don't think you see that really in, in in any of those till you get to university and people try to explain that a little bit um, to you at that that particular juncture. And you know, a lot of it's learnt as you go. So, um, no, I can't imagine that my parents ever had a pension. I don't think they ever had money in the bank. It was always like to say it was hand to mouth is I think is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it was, it was pretty damn close to that. You know, like I re- I would remember maybe on a Saturday going down to the supermarket that was fairly close to where we lived. And, um, you know, my, my mother and father maybe would treat themselves to steak on a Saturday evening, but it wouldn't be, you know, it wasn't sirloin or it wasn't ribeye or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was the cheapest cut. 
and they would make do with that. You know, I always look back, as much as I look back on my childhood with fond memories, you know, when I look back and, and try and view it from their perspective, you know, the only thing that I can really see is hardship, to be honest with you. And, 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 and yes, you're right, they would try to keep that away from you. But, you know, if I needed a new, new pair of football boots or I needed something for school, it was, you know, maybe it wasn't the top of the range that I was getting, but, you know, I was getting mm. something that was the best that they could offer at that particular time. And how did that inform your ambition in the world? You know, when you were thinking about what you wanted to do in life as a young, not saying like under 10, but kind of when you get into teenage years and you're thinking about when you're going to leave school and whether you're going to go to further education, how much was that informing what you thought you might want to do, whether or not it was something that was lucrative or well paid? Well, I, I always went to really good schools. So um, the, the school that I went to, Parmiters, was a you know, it used to be based out of the East End of London. It was a grammar school originally. So it was of a, it was of a very good quality. So I was always surrounded by people that were probably not as working class as me, if, if that's fair. So more of a middle class um, type of environment who grew up in, in, in different areas to me. Um, so I was, there was always a lot of aspiration. Um, you, you know, my mother was although she wasn't pursuing an academic career, she, she, she had more of an academic bent than my father. And so she would always try to motivate us to achieve more than she had. I think that was, you know, the, the overriding ambition from her. She came, you know, she was born in Aberdeen in Scotland and she moved down to Somerset when she was, um, you know, when she was in her 20s. She had a bit of a nursing background. But it was all about, um, you know, I think what she tried to do was maybe achieve more through her children than she had actually been able to. I don't, I don't think she was ever quite happy with the lot or the, the life that she was living. And she always wanted a little bit more. But she'd probably come to the conclusion that with four kids by that stage, that wasn't going to happen. And, and maybe the, one of the ways to achieve that was through, um, through her children. So She had ambition for you. Yeah, always. And, 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 you know, that ambition shone through certainly, you know, prior to the age of 11 um, by overachieving in junior schools and, you know, always being at the top of the class. Um, I don't think I'd necessarily set myself on any particular uh, career path. I often joke when I'm doing after dinners that my mother would have always wanted me to get involved in a career that was, you know, that involved banking, accountancy and the law. And, you know, unfortunately, I touched on them all in one way or another and, and definitely not in the way that she would have wanted me to. But, you know, that, that was, I suppose, that working class ambition to, you know, have a job for life you know, a job that's going to pay you for that period of time mm. that, you know, as you mentioned previously, that has pensions and, you know, is going to give you that security and and that leg up, if you like, into, mm. you know, more middle class England at the time, I suppose. And that was, you know, very working class ambitions. So am I right? You went, to the first job you had was at Morgan Stanley. Was that the first big bank? No, I left school and I worked for Coots. Right. So you worked for Coots first and this yeah. is your first kind of like look, your first glimpse inside that yeah. whole city life. And because nobody in the family you mentioned had worked in the city, you didn't have anybody who you could particularly refer to for sure. behavioural norms, you know, just it's different. It's a different environment, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, on day one, I would have stepped outside of, you know, bank tube station and it was a completely different world. I mean, I, I, and, and I don't want to over, over egg this too much, but, you know, the amount of times that I would have been to London, you know, just on its own would have been very, very limited. 
Um, Just for people know, listening to this, Nick, to put it into geographical context, you're near Watford and this yeah. is a very short car or train ride, you know, into London, isn't it? This is sure. 20, 25 minutes on a train, but a world yeah, away. You, yeah, because you, like, firstly, you've got to have the money to be able to get there. So, you know, like we never, we, we, we never had holidays overseas or anything like that. You know, if we were lucky, we got to Margate or, or somewhere like that, um, you know, maybe on a coach trip for a couple of days or something. I can't really remember staying anywhere um, overnight. So yeah, it was definitely a world apart when I started work in the city. And probably to emphasize that a little bit more, you know, at Coots and Company, they were still wearing tails and waistcoats when, uh, when, when you were working in the bank as well. So um, yeah, it was a completely different world. And, um, you know, everybody who, who was banking at Coots at the time um, were e extremely wealthy, as I'm sure is still the case today. Um, so it was a completely different, um, different way of life. And what did that do for, for you as a young man at the time in terms of opening your eyes to, to this new world of wealth and uh, ambition? And was it a kind of an immediate thing that you thought, oh, this is where I belong. I want, I want to get more of this and be involved in more of this. I don't think there was any sense of, uh, of belonging initially. You know, it was definitely you were from the other side of the street, if you like, to a certain degree. Um, but Coots was um, was a good organisation to work for. There was a you know there was a, a, a very diverse mix of people. You know it was quite um, a sporting environment. I used to play football for Coots as well down in Catford at the at the weekends, and they'd do things that I would never have done before. You know from a social perspective, the guy who managed the um, the Lombard Street branch, which is where I was working, um, right in the heart of the city. You know, he used to um, sometimes during the week take us to play Crown Green Bowls um, down somewhere in South London, which was, you know, I'd, never, I'd probably never seen the game before at that sort of stage. Um, but, yeah, no, like Coots was a very uh, welcoming, um, encouraging type of organisation. And, um, you know, I enjoyed my time massively there. But what it, you know, it was also the Big Bang era. So there was a lot of new banks coming to the city of London. There was a lot of opportunity. So if you were hardworking, if you were accurate, if you were diligent, then there was the chance to proceed because there was a lot of demand and mm -hmm. not a great deal of supply because it was expanding out so quickly. So it kind of fell into my lap, if you like, that it was a period of time that the city needed new people in order to flourish in the way that it expected over mm. the next couple of years. But there was also this, the whole cultural shift, if you like, wasn't there in terms of entrepreneurship and Thatcherism. And, you know, if you want to take it to the other extreme, the kind of Wall Street greed is good kind of, you know, mentality that, you know, if you look back in that period culturally, there was a massive change and you were in that period as this, this whole change was happening. Yeah. From the UK's perspective, it went from just the Big Bang era for me, which I think a lot of, you know, issues that occurred over the following years, including my own, you know, can be put back to, is it went from uh, the world of stockbroking, um, my word is my bond, mm. to, you know, this massive change in culture where it became other people's money. Um, you know, it was big banks um, with, big balance sheets and lots of foreign banks coming into the city of London. And there was a, a huge culture change over that period that I think has, 
you know, only really settled down um, a number of years later. And, you know, probably some of the culture issues that existed around that time have only really been weeded out in, in, in recent years. Was it exciting? As an 18-year-old, um, there were bits of it that was exciting. I mean, Coots is a high street bank, um, just a very posh high street bank. Um, so you're, you know, you're clearing checks, you're bouncing checks, you're giving out loans. So it's it's that sort of uh, more mundane form of banking, if you like. For me, it was a job. You know, I, I used to enjoy getting home and socialising with my friends, and um, you know, th- th- those were the people that I grew up with that I was more used to that I considered normal, uh, where there was a new normal, I suppose, in the city that um, I was kind of getting used to. I didn't really mix the two. Mm-hmm. The city for me was uh, was a job of work. And, you know, it, it gave me that ability to succeed, which was really important to me. It gave me the opportunity to prosper, which was equally important. But it was a job of work, you know, and it was about doing that as best as I possibly could. And then, you know, if I wanted to party or if I wanted to have fun, that was back home with people that I knew well, that I trusted and could enjoy myself with because I'd known them for a long period of time. So at this point, you had quite a healthy relationship with money. It was your salary, your work life was your work life. You were going home. It was very important to you, obviously, to have that stability. And were you earning enough at this point that you were able to do your own private investments or you were able to um, put money aside? Well, I bought a flat fairly early. So I think I was 19 or 20 when I did that. So this was going back to those days, as you mentioned, the Thatcherism type era. Where 100% mortgages. In- <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, 100% mortgages, but they were at 15 or 16%. So, True. you know, 100% mortgage didn't really matter too much unless you could pay the interest on it anyway. <laughs> so no, I, I, I bought an apartment fairly early on then. I think I was probably 19 or 20. So I, I like I was earning well. I mean, Coots were a good payer. And I don't think I've ever been a great saver. I'm not a great saver to this day. You know, I've still got some of those or a lot of those working class attributes that I would have seen in my mother. Um, you know, I, I'm not ostentatious. I don't really, um, you know, I have one watch. I can't work out why anybody would need two, um, uh, you know, very simple needs. So I, you know, I much prefer to give than than to have myself, if that makes sense. So I have three children um, now and I have a wife and you know they're all quite willing to receive as opposed to lucky for you uh, uh, yeah yeah of course so but no yeah look I I do remember um, and I can't remember the stock if you're going to ask me the question afterwards but there was a couple of penny stocks that I would have dabbled in around that sort of time but you know certainly not invest in any blue chip long-term mm. stocks um, you know it was just in and out type of transactions in something that was, you know, very cheap to invest in. I'm sure you have looked back and I know you've done a psychology degree, haven't you, um, as well. Mm. So I'm sure you've looked back and tried to work out how that young man ended up in Singapore, embroiled in one of the biggest, actually in Singapore, Mm. it's in the top 25 crimes of Singapore, you know, so one of the biggest financial scandals in the world. So how did that happen in such a short period of time that you seem like they're a very measured together young man who bought his flat and, you know, didn't really kind of get his head turned by material things. Tell us about getting to Singapore and and the process that saw you get into so much trouble. Yeah, well, the um, I suppose from Coots, 
um, as, a, as we've already painted the picture, it was the Big Bang era. There was lots of opportunities. So people were, you know, you, you don't see it so much these days, but people would change jobs. I saw people changing jobs after six months just because there was an extra five grand on the table to go and work for one of the big American investment banks because they needed people and there was limited supply. So I think that level of opportunity hasn't existed since. Mm-hmm. You know, this was probably a once in a lifetime um, situation and, and that afforded me a lot of possibility. I was also very good at my job. You know, I often say I didn't necessarily lick it off the ground. I was very, um, I was very diligent. I was very accurate. I've always been a hard worker. And so those things stood to me um, during that period. So after a couple of years at Coots, I applied for a job at Morgan Stanley, the big invest, uh, American investment bank. And was hired there. Um, started work down down by Lednall Market, um, looking after bond settlements. Um, initially, it was around the time of uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert and some of the drunk bond scandals that were going on at, at that particular time. Then moved into futures and options settlements with uh, again with Morgan Stanley, which was based uh, over in the West End. And was primed for a role on on the London traded options market trading floor at that time, but there was a bit of a tug of a war um, between uh, the trading floor staff and the people uh, that I worked for in the settlements department back in um, back in Tottenham Court Road at the time. And I could move, but I couldn't move just then. The opportunity may not be there. In, in, in another six months or so. So um, Bearings came on to me uh, at, at that time, headhunted me to go and head up their futures and options department in um, Port Soken Street back in the city. And there was good money on offer and Bearings were renowned for paying really, really big bonuses at the time. And I, I, I took that opportunity. So I think there was a lot of rewards for uh, for a lot of hard work during that that, mm-hmm. that particular period. Um, and I was on an upward path and um, at Bearings, I, I found the work quite quite boring, I'm afraid. Um, and so I went to one of the senior um, or one of the original directors of Bearing Securities, Ian Martin. And I said to him, look, Ian, unless you can find, and Ian was one of the person that was involved in the recruitment process. I said, unless we can find something else for me to do, uh, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. So he offered me a role in uh, on, on the Sydney Futures Exchange in Sydney, obviously, but it was again it wasn't ready. Um, so he said, "Would I mind going out to Hong Kong and work there for a period of time?" They had a big settlements issue that they couldn't solve, and they were going to send a, a, a few people from London out to try and do that. So I moved to Hong Kong. Uh, I was in Hong Kong for a month. Didn't particularly like it. Um, didn't like the English people. Um, they're very colonial um, and. You know, I was having a few disagreements with some of the English people that were out there. And I was then moved down to Jakarta in Indonesia and, and stayed there for about a year on, on or off. And I really enjoyed Jakarta. It was really basic. It was really down to earth, quite dangerous. Uh, we had a driver who would carry a gun, um, who would take us from the hotel to work. And, and, and we were trying to solve this issue that they had in, in, in uh, Indonesia at that time. Moved back to London for a short period of time after that, worked in business development. One of the roles that I was looking at was um, uh, opening up a seat on the Singapore International Monetary Exchange. And I then requested to move to Singapore to um, to take over that role, which 
the bank were only too keen for me to do. Um, and then things started to go wrong. Um, you know, up until that point, I'd always enjoyed success. I'd always been on that upward curve and, you know, encountered things that I couldn't cope with, um, didn't deal with appropriately straight away. And I suppose the easiest summation of it is that, you know, I met my own level of incompetence whilst I was in Singapore and, and, and made some really bad decisions, concealed losses in the now infamous 5.8s account. And, you know, that eventually over a three-year period led to the collapse of a 233-year-old merchant bank. It's some story, as as we know, and as anybody who's read your story yeah. has seen the, the film version of your story and, and heard you talk before, and, you know, I know to distill it down like that, which you've done many, many times, I'm sure talking to people about still probably feels a bit surreal when you say it. But when you're in the mm. midst of something like that, um, it's all consuming, I imagine, because for those three years, you, I, I assume, were thinking you could write this situation right until the very end. You thought you were going to be able to get out of it. Yeah, that was always the motivation that you'd, you'd be able to correct it, that you'd be able to keep it from people's attention or view. Because for me, you know, as much as I needed to be successful and had that drive to be successful, uh, for me, the biggest fear was the fear of failure. Um, and, and failure was anybody highlighting that I couldn't cope with what I was doing in Singapore, that I wasn't achieving, that I wasn't being successful. And, you know, that failure comes through in, in two different ways. Failure, it's embarrassing. For me, to this day, I will always be remembered for the most embarrassing period of my life. And, you know, that's difficult to take because you can achieve stuff either side of it. But still, you know, that period between 1992 and 1995 um, will always be the most embarrassing period of my life, regardless of what I may do from this particular point. But it's all about learnings, isn't it? Learnings for you, learnings yeah. for the whole industry. And, you yeah. know, I'm sure that, you know, you have plenty of time to think about that when you were sent to jail for those, you know, financial crimes. There was a point, presumably, where you were only going to be embarrassed in front of your peers early on in this you know th this didn't have to go all the way obviously to the point that it did so why do you think because you obviously wanted to write it you've just said but that's there's a long way isn't there from that early mistake that could have been something that was dealt with internally to the very end point what do you know about yourself now that led you all the way I don't know I look I I'm, I'm a firm believer that behavior exists on a continuum and you can you know you can be a a, a, a the good end of that and the bad end of that. I still look at certain behaviors that I have and the way that I am in certain situations. And you can, you, you can still pick out similarities, but as you said, it's about learning and, and, and knowing when something could be going wrong and, you know, and, and stopping that behavior at that particular point. Um, you know, unfortunately my lessons were learned in a very hard manner. And, and unfortunately they led to the collapse of a, of a merchant bank and an English merchant bank at that time as well. For me, there's lots of different things that come out of it, but you can, you know, asking for help and advice, I think is such an important message. I, I didn't do that. You know, it was a different time than it is now. And, you know, it was very, there was lots of ego and, and, and organizations and people were great at celebrating success. People didn't talk about failure. You know, there wasn't a great deal of psychological safety within the organizations. If you brought something to somebody's attention, you would be more worried that you're going to be ridiculed and people were going to laugh at you rather than take it seriously. So I think, you know, banks, financial organizations and the world in general mm -hmm. have come an awful long way 
in, in changing that. There's a, there's a lot more psychological safety here in 2023 than there's ever been in any year that I've seen previously, which I think is, is to be encouraged. I'm sure that, you know, there were periods that I was going through depression. There were uh, periods that other things were ha happening from a mental health perspective as well. And, you know, I wouldn't have been aware of those. I mean, I was diagnosed with cancer whilst I was in prison in Singapore as well. And, you know, I had no real knowledge of the signs that my body um, w w was telling me that something was wrong as well. But yeah, look, asking he for help and advice. I think communication is a is a huge tool. I think organizations haven't been as good as it uh, over the years, over the last number of decades. I think it's improving. But just as individuals, being uh, feeling empowered enough to ask for help and advice, I think is a, is a really positive thing. And, and like I said, at the age of 25, as I was when I was in Singapore, I saw asking for help and advice as a sign of weakness, whereas I should have seen it as a sign of trying to do things correctly. And I was surrounded by people that could have helped me mm. but, and pointed me in the right direction, but I just didn't do it. And it's such a simple thing to do, but you know, it, it, it didn't happen. I, I, I'm, I'm not really into wishful thinking, so I don't, I, I don't really think, you know, like I wish I did this. You know, the fact is I didn't, mm. uh, I, I, you know, uh, and it, as a piece of advice to encourage other people, you know, and I encourage my children exactly the same way, always ask me for help. And because of what you went through in the bank, what happened with the bank, um, the landscape changed and, you know, the way the whole industry uh, worked changed. Do you think it would be possible for the same thing to happen again? Um, not to the extent that you're going to see rogue trading um, to, to to that sort of extent. It did occur a few times afterwards. You have Jerome Kerville, you have Quaker Adaboli, you you know you've you, you've had scandals at J.P. Morgan with the London Whale. So there've been plenty of um, large scale scandals since that time. I, you know, I I often uh, make remark of the fact that I'm down to fifteenth or sixteenth in the list of all time losses, and I'm only going down that league table because there are some big one's still around you've you've got Archegos Capital in, in in recent years you've got FTX the um, the crypto exchange that's mm -hmm. collapsed as well so I think what you're seeing at the moment is they're in far more bespoke areas of the market so mm -hmm. the family firms the crypto area and I think all of those areas can learn from what's gone on in the past um, but I think the world of mainstream banking investment banking is far safer um, it's got better controls, better systems, better, and most importantly, better people and, and better technology in place to make sure that it can't go undetected and for did, so long. Did they come and ask you? Because obviously, yeah, I don't know if you know Matthew Syed's uh, black box thinking, you know, which is that um, certain industries are better at looking at mistakes and learning from them than others. Did anybody come and ask you? No, no, no uh, is the answer. And, I, you know, you don't know why. Um, I think... Like I speak all over the world, Gabby, and you know sometimes I'll be asked to an event in the UK, and one of the one of the big four accountancy firms will will get quite uppity about it. The fact that I'm there, um, it's a very English approach. Whereas in the US, you'll be you know you'll be going over and you'll be asked to get involved in um, you know uh, an, an investigative team that are looking in uh, to trading within major banks and similar in South Africa when I've been to South Africa. So there's a 
there's a British approach and then there's a rest of the world type of approach. I think it's changing a little bit. Um, I, I do do a lot of talking in the UK and like I was in prison in Singapore for four years. So I, I was a captive audience. Yeah, right? you'd, have, could, you'd have gladly could, had a visitor. <laughs> yeah, of course, because I didn't get many, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, like I would have spoken to anybody at that time just to have got out of a six foot, nine foot cell with, you know, two triad gang members that weren't getting on particularly well. So um, no, it's strange, but... No, they didn't want to ask. And, and Singapore was the perfect example or, or the perfect time mm. to do that because I was locked up for 23 hours a day and looking for something to do. Um, since your uh, rehabilitation into the, the wider world after, after your time in, in prison, um, has your, and it's been a bit of time now, has your relationship with money changed uh, dramatically to the person who, who entered into that whole situation in Singapore? I, I think the honest answer to your question is uh, there have probably been some slight modifications, but, you know, I, I still hold the same things true. Um, you know, like I said, I'm not material. I'm certainly not ostentatious. I, you know, like I live well uh, and, and I don't try to hide that. You know, I've been very fortunate since I was released from prison in, in, in terms of the type of opportunities that have that, that, that have come to my door and I, I definitely try to make the best of those. So, um, what about your investment strategy then in terms of risk? <laughs> uh, in terms of risk, now, look, I, I'm a firm believer that you, uh, I, I do have a pension pot. I invest it myself, you know, so I, I, I trade maybe two or three different equities within that pension pot. And, you know, I understand the, um, or I understand better um, the association between risk and reward. But because of my background and the things that I did within the world of banking, you also understand that if you want to make money through investing, there has to be a certain degree of volatility. You need to manage risk appropriately within that. But I'm, I'm drawn to um, some of the more volatile assets. So a little bit, probably a little bit more high risk than, than the average investor then you'd say yeah i'd say so and and for me you know I, I i like to make the investments myself as opposed to having somebody else do it that doesn't suit everybody and that's um you know that's fully understandable and that's why you know you have some great managed funds and individuals that people can get involved with and the companies that they work for it's um you know, just my, just my personal preference. I don't, I don't ever like being in a situation where I blame somebody for my own actions, and that includes my own investment. So I prefer to do those myself. You mentioned your your children, and mm. uh, and specifically about coming to you for help and making sure you need, if you need help, to speak up. What about with regard to money and and the education that you talked about before that you didn't get from your parents, and a lot of people don't in terms of you know. This is what you should do. Put this money away. Ice is a really, you know, or whatever it is. Do you have those conversations with them? Do you want to educate them? I do a little, little bit, and I, you know, I give them a, a fairly honest and um, and frank answer. Um, I probably don't educate them as much as uh, as maybe I should in that regard. I think they're all still quite young. Um, so the youngest is eighteen. The eldest is um, is twenty four, and. The two eldest ones are, um, are are living on their own now. The uh, the youngest is still with us, so he's doing a degree in finance and uh, and, and banking. I are think. you on the syllabus? 
<laughs> I'm sure I am, yeah. I think I'm on most syllabuses these days, but uh, for one reason or another. You know, just as a funny story, one of my friends, uh, his, his son was 15 or 16 and they were doing the subject of finance in, uh, or, or they came across the story of Bearings uh, at his school and the teacher was giving me a pretty, pretty bad run uh, of it when he was introducing the story. And my friend's son stood up and said, look, you're wrong. I know him and he's nothing like that. So yeah, it's just a weird, just weird scenarios that, you know, you come across yeah. from time to time. Did you feel, I'm sure you did feel at, at times, enormous guilt about what was happening? Because obviously, there's, as you oh, mentioned a few times, there was the history of a bank like that, you know, yeah. all that, as well as the, the losses. And how did you deal with that? Well, you've also got, you, you've got all the individuals as mm -hmm. well. So, you, you know, you, um, you know, I was asked at an event in South Africa many years ago, why my ethical compass was so narrow. And I'd never really, um, up until that point, I'd never really sat down and tried to work out um, what that meant or, um, you know, why that was the case. But you, you just become so preoccupied with what's going on in your small area and trying to solve the situation that you're not thinking about shareholder value. You're not thinking about how your actions are going to impact upon other people. And that's so important because, you know, my actions um, implicated 2,000 other people within the organization over that period because, you know, they will have all ultimately gone to work for ING um, who, who, who bought the bank, but obviously the bank didn't, um, didn't recover, wasn't able to be saved. But you become very blinkered to what's going on um, mm. around you. And, you know, as much as there were systems and processes and controls that should be, have been in place, you know, I was just focused on trying to survive for another short period in 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 the belief I was gonna um you know I, I was gonna manage to get to that Hail Mary type scenario where all of the um all of the losses would be extinguished. And you know the the strange thing that happens is you see all of these small positives which ultimately are false positives that you're gonna be able to turn something around. Um and you know like I mean, you go through a period um, of, of complete guilt, complete remorse, um, but then eventually you've got to you've got to move on from it, and, and and that's probably the thing that you know dissatisfies most people that you have been able to move on, and and, and obviously the bank didn't, mm. and you know I can apologise for that, and I can beat myself up about it, but that you know I I, I have a second opportunity if you mm -hmm. like at life and family and, and and proving myself and you know I'm going to take advantage of that thank you so much Nick it's been great chatting to you and uh, hearing your current um, strategy for investment uh, as opposed to one in a previous uh, life and also hearing how you pass that on to your kids so uh, I think people will really enjoy hearing your story thank you thank you Gabby Thanks for listening to the II Family Money Show. If you've got time, please give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review or rating. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. See you next time.